It is well decided, and we agree, that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse door. However, it is equally well decided that those constitutional rights will be administered in a way that is sensitive to the school environment. Listeners, I'm Elise Benner. And I'm Anna Saroff. And we're back with the High School SCOTUS podcast. The Supreme Court's 2021 to 2022 term is complete, and it was jam-packed, to say the least. As many a Twitter talking head noted, you could take any of the Supreme Court's recent rulings, Carson v. Macon, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, West Virginia v. EPA, or Kennedy v. Bremerton School District in isolation, and you'd have a term defining political landscape shifting decision. But this term uh, brought us all of those cases in a bunch more that were kind of out of the spotlight, but almost as consequential. I think you saying that it was a jam-packed term, to say the least, is very true. It's been a really long term, and I, for one, am a little bit exhausted. But because this is a high school SCOTUS podcast, and two of the cases Elise just mentioned are about students and religion, we're recapping the court's decisions in both cases today with the help of the amazing Sarah Barringer Gordon of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Before we get to our conversation with Professor Gordon, let's break down the two cases the court heard this term. First, we're going to talk about Carson v. Macon, which was actually the first case that Elise named. Carson is the most recent in a long, long stream of cases to concern whether the government can, cannot, or must offer services or funds to a religious school if it offers them to a non-religious entity. Let's hit the table for what Carson was talking about. So Carson specifically scrutinized Maine's tuition assistance program. If you've ever been to Maine, it's in the northeast corner of the U.S., and it's the most rural state in the country. So to put this into perspective, just 43.1 people per square mile. So isolated, in fact, that more than half of the school districts in Maine do not have a public high school. So when students without a public high school turn 14, Maine gives them two options, and that's what created the case at issue here. So they can go to a public school in a neighboring district, or they can go to a private high school, as long as it isn't sectarian. The government will give them tuition assistance to attend that school. That's crazy. The listeners could not see my jaw dropping because they did not hear the 43.1 people per square mile statistic. That's wild to me. But in the end, the court ruled in their decision by a 6-3 majority, I bet you can guess the breakdown, that Maine violated the parents' and students' constitutional right to free exercise by refusing to fund their education at a school simply because it is religious. Now, obviously, Maine has a very unique and specific situation and one that is unlikely to occur in other states. However, it's important to recognize that the court had handled relatively analogous cases in recent years that concerned these tuition assistance or scholarships or funding for religious schools, and precedent was a big factor in deciding Carson. So two cases really set the tone for the majority opinion. Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue and Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia Incorporated versus Comer. Both cases were decided in the past five years. In Trinity, Missouri's constitution prohibited the state from funding playground resurfacing at a religious school. And you're going to hear us mention this in our discussion with Sally. In Espinoza, a Montana law 
refused to give children scholarships for religiously affiliated schools. And we're also going to talk about this. So it's important context. The court found that in both these cases, the states violated free exercise rights. By applying the precedents in both Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, the court made the case in Carson seem easy. Carson's destiny was pretty much predetermined by this decision in Espinoza, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his majority, and their hands were kind of tied. The majority didn't really concern themselves with the Establishment Clause. I think when I was reading it, they mentioned it once because of a prior decision in Zelman versus Simmons-Harris, which found that using government vouchers for religious schools didn't violate the Establishment Clause. So their only question was whether not giving government vouchers to religious schools could violate the other religious clause, the Free Exercise Clause. Chief Justice Roberts' majority said that it did, and that Maine's law was purely religious discrimination, plain and simple. The dissent was positively curious. Justice Breyer wrote for the liberals, and he told this very different story. While Espinoza and Trinity may have protected religious schools from discrimination based on their identity or affiliation, Maine's law needed to be treated differently. It prohibited the use of tuition assistance that would go directly towards religious education and teaching. Here, the court needed to acknowledge the more pressing Establishment Clause concerns that come with sending money for specific religious use rather than just to a religious entity. So what Hannah's mentioning here is authority distinction called the use status distinction, which basically says there's a difference between just not sending money to a religious entity because it is religious. And that's what we saw in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, where it's just for playground resurfacing. And the reason it's not going there is because it has Catholic in its name. But what we saw here in Carson v. Macon is this idea of the tuition assistance funds going directly toward paying religious teachers salaries. And that's the reason why Maine wasn't offering tuition assistance to those religious schools. But there's something else that Justice Breyer wished that the court would acknowledge in their opinion, which was this idea of playing the joints. Basically, states should have some freedom and leeway to craft education policy without immediately saying that it either discriminates against religious exercise or that it immediately violates the Establishment Clause. This idea of a middle ground that is okay and that states can craft legislation in. And that's something we're really going to address later when we talk with Professor Gordon. The majority and the dissent simply seem to read the Establishment and the Free Exercise Clause completely differently and express or opposite views on how they should impact public education. But first, let's move on to Kennedy School District v. Bremerton, a case the Supreme Court released on Monday, June 27th. Now, if you're a student and you've heard anything about the Supreme Court this term, other than the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned, it's probably that a football coach from Washington, actually Hannah's home state, reached the Supreme Court in a case about his freedom to pray on the 50-yard line before the start and after the end of football games. I like that Elise felt obligated to mention that it was from my home state because I mention it every time we talk about this case. But I am willing to bet you $20 that you can guess how this case goes because unsurprisingly, the district and circuit courts both ruled in favor of the school district. But what do we think the Supreme Court did? They reversed their rulings and found that the district violated Kennedy's free exercise rights by firing him. Although the court has clearly stated that students and teachers may pray privately and on their own, the court has often cited Establishment Clause concerns in striking down more public prayer or prayer that might be clearly endorsed by the school or may coerce other students into feeling like they need to pray even if it's not in line with their religious beliefs. 
For instance, schools can't play a prayer over the loudspeaker at the start of school. Think Heath Ledger in 10 Things I Hate About You singing Can't Keep My Eyes Off of You across the entire field if that was prayer. Be a big no-no in a public school. What Hannah's saying is that even if it's an optional prayer, the school, just by playing it, is making you feel like you need to be a part of it. And that's a similar situation that came up in another case when a school brought a member of the clergy to pray at graduation. According to the majority opinion from the court, you kind of have to attend graduation and it's run by the school. So prayer couldn't happen. In prayer over the loudspeaker by a student chaplain, even if the students chose to have that prayer, is unconstitutional because it's something that's endorsed and run by the school. And Keith Ledger can't run around at graduation singing a prayer, which is a bit of a bummer. I don't know how you feel about that. But in the SCOTUS news, the majority painted Kennedy's prayer as a really private, quick, non-coercive prayer that occurred while students were otherwise occupied, similar to just like taking a call after a game. So the court said there wasn't evidence to prove the students thought they had to join in, and the simple perception or assumption of endorsement wasn't enough to obfuscate the fact that there was simply no endorsement. They compared Kennedy's quick prayer to a coach just taking a phone call on the sideline while the kids were doing their rally cheer at the start of the game. And because, once again, the school district was simply treating Kennedy different than, for example, this coach that was taking a call, it was religious discrimination. The only reason he couldn't perform this act was because it was religious. Of course, the dissent disagreed with that on both factual and legal basis. But we'll get into all of that with our amazing, amazing guest, Professor Sarah Barrier-Gordon. Let's move to that conversation now. Sarah Barrier-Gordon is the Arlen M. Adams Professor of Constitutional Law and Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. She's a well-known commentator on the role of religion in public life and the separation of church and state. She's written multiple books on the history of religion in America. Professor Gordon, we are so incredibly grateful that you could find the time to join us today. I'm delighted to be here with you. So, Professor Gordon, on a normal year when you're teaching, what is your area of study? What do you talk to your students about? That's a great question. I'm trained in religion, law, and history, and I work extensively on church and state, that is the law affecting religion and government, and the relationship between the two. And I work primarily in historical research, trying to figure out how we got where we are today. So for people listening right now, we're going to just start picking your brain about recent events. So it's helpful to know that today is Wednesday, June 29th. There were a couple big opinions from the Supreme Court recently. And the first one we want to talk about is Carson v. Megan. So in that case, the majority and the dissent have really fundamentally different readings of the two religion clauses in the First Amendment. Roberts really presented the situation as one of religious discrimination, violating free exercise rights, and Breyer presented it as a tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, in which states should be given room to find a solution that violates neither. Is this true? Do the justices interpret the rule of the religion clauses differently? Indeed, they do. And in fact, the religion clauses of the First Amendment, that first set of words in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. 
And they actually pull in different directions. The Establishment Clause aims to get government out of the business of promoting religion, and the Free Exercise Clause aims to get out of the business of doing anything that interferes with religion. So that if you construe the Establishment Clause very broadly, it would mean a much more secular society, forbidding government from all kinds of actions that might recognize and support religion. The Free Exercise Clause, on the other hand, demands that government recognize and allow religious behavior to continue. So in some senses, they pull in different directions. And one of the things that we've seen across the history of the country is the Establishment Clause prevailing at some points and the Free Exercise Clause prevailing at others. And interestingly, from the perspective of a podcast like this, Many of the cases that articulate that relationship involve education. In Breyer's dissent, he frequently brought up this concept of play in the joints as the ideal method through which the state should be able to make and craft laws concerning that tension or clash between free exercise and the separation of church and state. It's this flexibility necessary to allow states to make policy that fits their needs but doesn't violate constitutional rights. When was this principle established, and do you think, does it still exist? Has the court kind of said, we're not worried about playing the joints anymore? So really, for our purposes, we're talking about 80 or 85 years of history, not almost 250. So the Supreme Court began applying the commands that are addressed to Congress in the First Amendment, they began applying that to state and local governments in the 1930s and especially the 1940s. So one of the things to think about is that all of this is relatively new, comparatively speaking. And when the Supreme Court first decided establishment and free exercise cases in the 1940s, say, they viewed the clauses as really accomplishing the same thing. But soon it became evident that they pull in different directions. And one of the big questions became, is there a gap between them? One exists on one side of the spectrum and the other on the other side of the spectrum. And are all kinds of things in between okay, not of constitutional concern. And that is what we really call the play in the joints, or you could call it a gap between the two or the space between the two that would allow governments substantial latitude to act. And so what Breyer's doing by saying, oh, the play in the joints is so important, is calling attention to opinions handed down from the 1950s right through the early 21st century by conservatives as well as liberals. So, for example, Justice Rehnquist would talk about the right of states, say, to have more strict establishment clause standards than is true for the federal government. In other words, that there's a gap that religion clauses don't cover everything. That's the play in the joints. I have a question that is very opinion-based, but were you surprised by the court's decision in Carson or the severity of their ruling? It's a great question. There have been several cases that revolve around similar topics. Locke against Davey is an opinion involving Washington state that forbade state scholarships to go toward training people for the ministry. 
And the question was, did that violate the student's free exercise rights? And the student involved in that case wound up going to law school instead of training for the ministry at the end of the day and was a first-year law student when the case was argued. But the opinion was written by Justice Rehnquist, one of his final opinions, and he said Washington state has a stricter standard than we have in the federal government, and that's okay. That's a real commitment to what we call federalism. The various powers of state versus national governments Does the Constitution not interfere with much of what the state does in this area, or is it actually a keen overseer, as we saw in Carson against Macon? So I guess the really pertinent question is whether states are allowed to make rules that aren't required by the Constitution, and if so, will those stand up to criticism from the perspective of the other clause? And the answer here was no. And I have to tell you, in, I think it's 2004, when Locke against Davey was decided, a lot of conservatives were horrified that a doctrine they really support, strong state power, had been used in this way. I'm happy that you brought Locke up because it is one of four precedents that the court references. I think Locke, the court seems to throw away as in this one small category of when you're training someone to actually work in the ministry. But then they also talk about Zelman, Trinity Lutheran, and Espinoza, which are three cases that say, first, it's okay if you want to send state funds to religious education. And then those two other, Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, which really say sometimes you can't actually restrict funds from going toward religious-affiliated organizations. Would you say that Carson, as Chief Justice Roberts says, is a natural extension of precedent, or does it break away from what we've previously seen? There's a kernel of truth to both. (laughs) It breaks away and relies on precedent. It is true that Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza make it clear that when governments are offering benefits, they can't just tell religious organizations or individuals that they don't get a piece of the pie. And in that sense, you can see Locke against Davy just wavering. But one of the key ways that judges discount the importance of a previous case of a precedent is to describe it narrowly. And that's really what Roberts did here. He was putting it in its place or putting it in a smaller space, I guess is what I want to say. And that's a classic way that judges signal that the case has no legs in the present. Continuing this line of questioning on precedent, Chief Justice Roberts mentions the Establishment Clause once in his decision, and he says it's irrelevant because of the court's precedent in Zellman. Are the liberal justices right that the conservatives are quickly disregarding the separation between church and state? Yeah, sort of. They really are. They have a point. The free exercise clause has what one of my constitutional law professors would call in his Texas accent, elephantiasis. (laughs) In other words, that it has grown in size and stature and weight at the same time that the free exercise clause has been shrunken. So really, when we're talking about the ways of interpreting these two clauses, we're seeing a sort of preeminence of the free exercise clause, which even 30 years ago would have been astonishing. 
and a distancing of the Establishment Clause, which grew very strong in school finance cases in the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. I think the interesting difference that I noted when reading the opinion in the dissent between how they viewed the Establishment Clause was that Robert said it's not really a big deal as long as there's not an outright violation of the Establishment Clause. Because Zellman said, well, the Establishment Clause isn't violated when you send state funds to religious organizations. But Breyer said that even possible Establishment Clause concerns could give the state leeway to actually decide how they send funds to organizations. And so I thought that was interesting, the difference between needing the Establishment Clause to actually be violated and needing there just to be concerns or tension to allow the state to regulate. And again, that's part of an expanding free exercise jurisprudence, as we would say, and a constricting vision of the Establishment Clause. So one of the things that, for example, the great Justice Louis Brandeis said about states is that they are laboratories of democracy. And the best way for the country to learn how policies will play out is to watch how states do it and see how it works for them. One of the ways you can see this happening in our own lifetimes, for example, is with same-sex marriage. So various states, starting with Massachusetts 20 years ago, really now, began allowing marriage or civil unions, which were marriage in all but the label. And it's not that the label doesn't mean anything, but it was a significant set of advances. And the world didn't come to an end. It was easy enough to fold in same-sex couples because we're already built for two people. They could marry, they could divorce, they could make wills, they could visit each other in the hospital. These are things we all already have set up for spouses. Whereas if it was polygamy, it would be much harder to fold it in, right? You'd have to change a lot of things. So same-sex marriage began to look more credible to many jurisdictions and the creation of same-sex families illustrated how the law would work on the ground. So if you think of it that way, if you think of states as in some sense proving grounds, then you can see why someone like Breyer might say, well, why not let them try this? This is what they think is best for themselves. It certainly is consistent with 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 our basic suppositions behind the establishment clause, which is that we don't have any official religion. And it may go farther than we would command, but that shouldn't be a problem. That, again, that refers to the play in the joints, if you will. Well, I feel like we kind of have to bring up use versus status because it was such a big part of the opinion and the dissent. Yes. You see a use and status distinction between restricting public funds based on religious character or identity and restricting the direct use of those funds for religious education and indoctrination? Yeah. Well, one way to make this a little clearer is to think about how it came to be so important, which is that one of the things that the Constitution really prohibits is a religious test. We cannot ask people what their religion is when we're thinking about their right to vote or anything else, right? The idea is that we do not make religion a qualifier or a disqualifier. So you can see some of that. That does make sense. And in those school funding cases that I was talking about starting in the mid and late 20th century, the question became, 
okay, if we're sending 95 cents out of every private school funding dollar to a Catholic school, what are they doing with it? Are they buying globes and math books or are they teaching catechism? And so there's a difference between the use that something is put to. If you know it's going toward getting someone ready for confirmation, we recognize that as a religious aspect, not an educational aspect that the government should be supporting. So it was okay in one case for the government to help parochial schools hire extra math teachers, but it was not okay to pay the salaries of nuns. So there you have the use that the money's being put to versus the status of the organization to which it's going. It sounds in some senses like it doesn't make sense, but you can see it. If you're giving money to a Lutheran church that runs a soup kitchen, if you know it's going to the soup kitchen, that's better than if it's going to build a new altar, for example. So there's a way of thinking about use versus status. And I definitely noticed that in Trinity Lutheran because he was resurfacing playgrounds. Everyone deserves to have a playground, right? That's not religious at all. But I think this case could definitely be seen as being different because these parents were specifically sending their kids to those schools because they were religious schools often. But Chief Justice Roberts said, use status and it's all kind of the same thing. Do you feel like that was ignoring a bigger issue? Oh, it's just a big set of questions. We talked about 95 cents on every dollar going to Catholic schools, which is really the way it plays out with most government school funding. And the question is, is this direct aid to a religious organization or is it indirect? Because in this case, the parents make the choice of how to direct the money. And so should we care about the fact that it starts with the government and ends up in the pockets of a religious school? Or is it more important that we allow the parents to choose? And again, I want you to notice that I'm not saying the kids get the choice here. So there's really, it's worth mentioning that because in some cases that involve 15, 16, 17 year olds, the assumption is that only the parents have a choice. And it's worth interrogating that. When do we think kids should get to choose for themselves? But the question of a choice that was behind Zellman, for example, it was the parents who were choosing. In the Carson case, it's also the parents. So one way to think about this is that we're funneling money to families and their choice is what determines where the funds go rather than the government's choice. And this goes way, way back in Establishment Clause jurisprudence. The first case that the federal government considered involving the Establishment Clause was about school busing. They bused high school students in New Jersey for free from one town to Trenton, the capital, where there were high schools, and this town had no high schools. And all of the kids who were bused went to Catholic schools would not have been able to go to school without this busing. And the Supreme Court said, that's okay. Our main focus is kids. We want what's best for kids. The dissent said, are you kidding? You're putting money in the pockets of those priests and nuns. And so the fight over whether it's direct or indirect, whether it's been a choice of a family versus government funding, and um, what 
the dissent and Carson and the dissent in that first busing case said was nonsense. It's more money in their pockets. And that's what we should focus on, the reality of the situation versus the veil of parental choice. I'm really excited to move on to the court's decision in Kennedy versus Bremerton because it came out on Monday and it's from my home state of Washington, which is always fun. And in this case, the justices sided with a football coach who wanted to prey on the sidelines of the football field. How did the justices differentiate this decision from their prior rulings that prohibited prayer at school? Yeah, this is an old fight too, a really old fight. And one of the key things to note is that prayer in schools back in 1962 in the first case prohibiting an imposed prayer in New York State has continued. People don't really obey this ban. And many of your listeners would have, like me, experienced prayer in school growing up. So that's just one thing to put on the table is that prayer has been controversial the whole time. And although politicians say they've banned God from school, anyone who goes to school knows that hasn't actually worked out on the ground the way, the way some people say. So one of the things to note here is that this is a state employee, a coach, and this is the classic setting. God and football, those go way, 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 way back. God and football have been before the Supreme Court many times. And I remember giving this one talk, it's probably 15 years ago now to my class, and we were talking about the most recent God and football case, which prohibited an elected student chaplain from giving an evangelical prayer at the start of football games in, of course, Texas. <laughs> At any rate, I told the class that I'd gotten a call from a reporter the previous day asking whether it was a problem for a football coach to lead his team in the Lord's Prayer before every practice. And I said, well, only if it's a state school. It was New Jersey. It was a state school. It made the front page of the paper the next day, and I got a lot of hate mail and hate calls. <laughs> But I was telling this story and a student in the class raised his hand and said, well, the coach led my team in the Lord's Prayer every day throughout my college career. And I said, was it a state school? And he said, no, it was Harvard. <laughs> so this school that is renowned for being sort of the home of secularists and ungodly in the deepest terms, it's even true at Harvard that coaches want to inspire their players through prayer. And many, many football players give it all up to God. Tim Tebow, right? That famous kneeling portrait of him. I think he's even copyrighted that photo. It's part of his marketable identity. So one of the things we're seeing here is, again, well gone over ground. And what we haven't focused on before is the religious liberty of the coach who actually works for the government as one of the educational staff. And so was this a surprise? I mean, with this court, maybe not. But the idea that a coach kneeling by the sidelines praying wouldn't affect the players and the crowd really strikes me as untenable. So 
I have to say, I think that case, having been a high school athlete myself and knowing how much importance my coach had in my life, I think it's not quite realistic to divorce it from the influence of the coach on those around him. And that's exactly what the majority seemed to do because there was this basic disagreement about the facts in the case or how the facts would be perceived and that the majority seemed to posit that this was a completely private, quick prayer, similar to someone bowing their head in a cafeteria silently while everyone else is busy getting their lunch because the kids were doing their school cheers. And then it was just like the coach was taking a call on his phone, but instead he was praying. But then the dissent puts this big picture up of all the kids around the coach and the parents. What did you think of that? And where do you fall on the spectrum of totally private to this very large public affair? It's such a great question because I think for those who pray, there are public and private experiences, right? There are things you would never say out loud that you can say privately in prayer that are a communication between yourself and God, if that's what you're doing. So one of the things that's really important to think about here is the status. The coach has power. We all know that. The other is his individual right. Does he retain a right to worship as an employee of the state and someone who exercises power over others? It's a really deep set of questions. Personally, my own analysis is that when someone is in a position of authority, their actions affect those around them in ways that we just can't appreciate not having experienced his relationship to his students. And I think the dissent was really calling that forward, that coaches, and I have to tell you where I teach in the Ivy League, I've taught student football players who say, I always pray before every game. This to me, playing football is a religious act. So in some sense, it's a game, in some sense, it isn't. And so I do understand the complexity of it. I hope you won't think I'm brushing over the really fraught quality of some of these issues. I don't think it's silly to think about prayer in association with a game, especially one as dangerous as football. On the other hand, I think the coach, by having such a commanding presence, the coach praying, obviously, in front of the entire assemblage, that has an effect that I think the majority simply did not concede. It focused on the individual, not his status. Talking about that, why did the court totally dismiss claims that Coach Kennedy was coercing kids into prayer, either by encouraging it or creating the implicit perception that cooperating with prayer might be correlated to getting right? Right. So coercion is a really good, you used exactly the key word in describing this. You've really caught on to what's going on. So the central question for many commentators and judges behind the Establishment Clause is coercion. Is this being forced on people who have no power to resist? That's key to the school prayer cases, for example. There's a series of cases involving student graduations. If those include a prayer, do we view the students as having been coerced to attend? The Supreme Court has wound up citing psychological studies, for example, of the sense of teenagers who feel like they have to show up 
even if they'll get a diploma, whether or not they appear at graduation and so on, is this coerced? And so the question of coercion has itself become difficult to answer. Does coercion mean holding a gun to someone's head or twisting their arm? Or can it be this kind of communication that doesn't involve anything physical? Does this count as coercion? And the majority was saying, no, we take a very literal approach to what coercion is. Most of the time, I think in the prior cases about praying at school, there's coercion and there's endorsement. And that's part of the lemon test, which the court basically said, we have just abandoned the lemon test over time. And it's just no longer relevant at all without actually saying we're overruling this or we're going to go through the steps to decide if we can ignore precedent. It was just, it's kind of archaic and obsolete and it doesn't concern us anymore. What did you think of that? And why was that so important in how the court then reasoned in this case? Yeah, the Lemon case and the Lemon test are products of those school funding controversies. A 1971 opinion by Chief Justice Warren Burger at that time sort of summarized what had happened in Establishment Clause cases to that date. There really was nothing new, but it was the first time that the court collected this into a three-prong test of various levels of supporting religion that should concern the Supreme Court. Um, the Lemon Test went from being something that was very useful to lower court judges. They always like to have something they can line up the cases against, so they relied on it then and often still do. It became more and more controversial over time because as it turned out, the test was used in many cases to hold unconstitutional state and federal plans to send aid to parochial schools. So before Zellman, the Lemon case got in the way of a lot of actions. And over that period, the public school system went from being one of the strongest in the country to something we're all embarrassed about in many jurisdictions. There are still great schools, but they're almost always underfunded. And so one of the scary things would be if Catholic and other non-public schools closed across the country, the government simply could not afford to educate all those kids. So there's real skin in the game of trying to keep these schools open. And so one of the, one of the things that began to be tossed around was whether sending money and other good things, books and playground equipment, as we talked about in Trinity Lutheran, whether sending those things to religious institutions actually is an endorsement of them, or is it just helping them to survive? And more and more and more, that's what the courts have been interested in doing thinking about how we make it practical for these alternative educational institutions to exist. It's a really great point. And I feel like I keep changing the topic of conversation, but I want to have us move a little bit into the bigger picture. So Professor Lee Estine, who would be appalled by me saying this, but is my legal empiricist queen, 
And Eric Posner wrote about how pro-religion the Roberts Court is. They rule in favor of religious organizations 83% of the time. So zooming out, what are the major shifts in how the court views free exercise and establishment claims? Oh, boy, that's another great question, Hannah. Thank you. So can I start with a small story? So just about a year ago, my phone rang and I didn't recognize the number. And it was a British reporter. And the British reporter said, why does it seem like the Supreme Court cares so much about religion? Nobody else does. And I said, well, you know, we're in the United States. A lot of people care about religion. And he said, no, they don't. I'm looking at the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life latest poll, and the category of nuns, meaning no official affiliation, has grown steadily over the past generation, and it just keeps getting bigger. And so what his point was, fewer and fewer people care about religion, and here's the Supreme Court throwing down the red carpet. Why are they doing this? And then so I had two reactions to him. One was not being affiliated doesn't mean you don't care. That's a triple negative. A person who doesn't have an affiliation to a particular church may be deeply spiritual and often is. So not belonging to, say, the Presbyterian church doesn't mean that someone has no regard for their spiritual life. So you're asking the wrong question or drawing the wrong conclusion from the questions the Pew Forum asked. And second is that our Constitution tells them they have to care. The religion clauses are the first words of the First Amendment to the National Constitution passed by Congress in 1789 and affirmed by the states and became law in 1791. They've been around for a long time. They're not going anywhere. They are one of the central elements of the American story of religious liberty. So there's a big constitutional elephant in the room. You don't just turn your back. The other way to think about it, though, is that religious institutions themselves are struggling. The number of members is falling precipitously in many groups, including the Catholics who dominate the Supreme Court at this point. So that's one thing to take into account. Institutions are suffering, even if spiritual life is still very vigorous. And one of the things that seems to be happening is that there is a strong commitment by the court to religious institutions, but also to individuals like the Bremerton case. And one of the things that I think is worth raising in any conversation like this is how deeply criticized the Constitution is now. So we have this ancient document that seems to be stuck. It hasn't been amended in well over 50 years. It's a static document. And the Supreme Court seems to interpret more and more as a static document. And so many people are criticizing the Constitution as not having been adaptable enough to 21st century life, as being anchored in a deep 
past, one that doesn't bear much examination given the history of slavery and oppression broadly and genocide, if I could add that one in, in the country. So one of the things that's happening, not just with critique of the Supreme Court's Establishment Clause opinions, is a broader critique stepping back of the Constitution itself. Can it survive in this sort of frozen stature going forward? Do we want it to survive? I'm thinking of a number of law professors, the history professor Jill Lepore at Harvard and so on, and many others, um, abolitionists. So they're deep critics of the Constitution. For example, the 13th Amendment prohibits involuntary servitude, except for those convicted of crimes. And of course, the number of those convicted of crimes has skyrocketed. And we are the most jailing country on the planet by a huge amount. And the racism behind those convictions is evident. So one of the ways to think about the bigger problem really stepping back is, is the Constitution helping us now? And yes, it is very powerfully addressed toward religion, but is it addressing the problems associated with religion now? It's a serious set of questions and worth thinking through. You're completely right. I think that is the big question of our time is, is the Constitution helping or harming us as we may read it? But let's talk about religion. Where does the court go next? What is the next way they're going to extend the free exercise clause and shrink the establishment one? And what cases are on the horizon here? Oh, boy. Yeah, there are always cases on the horizon. I do think we've seen extraordinary growth. It's often the case that the Supreme Court will really march in like a group of elephants and knock down all the trees in a particular area, and then it goes away for a while. That could be the case. The Supreme Court has substantial control over its docket. If it doesn't want to take more cases, it doesn't have to. One of the things that's been racketing around, sort of like a, a billiard ball hitting various different parts of the table, is whether Lemon should be overruled. Different justices are on record saying different things about that. Will they do it? Certainly many of them want to and many don't. So it may just be that it lingers on sort of comatose, <laughs> but not dead. And so predicting the future is very difficult. Historians are trained that it's a lot better to predict the past than the future. I do want to say that it's common for the Supreme Court to back off an area after it's been very active for a while. The other thing that we may see are cases that follow that school prayer path that has been laid down. It would be interesting to see what happens to that. There was, in the early 21st century, a very serious attack on the Pledge of Allegiance, whether the words under God, which were added in 1954 in direct response to communist atheism, whether those inject a religious element into the pledge that seems to have gone away, but it, it could come back. So we can see finance cases, prayer cases, and so on. Those could come back. There are also a series of proposals for statutes. For example, there's one that came out of Utah. To me, it looks like it's dead. But when I was in Utah recently, they said, oh, no, it's alive and well in the Senate and Congress 
called the Fairness for All Act in response to the same-sex marriage ruling, the Obergefell case. And that would protect religious institutions. So churches, religious enterprises, such as soup kitchens or other nonprofits would be protected against claims of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or marital status or so on. And so something like that could come up that would connect religious organizations and their liberties to other things that are going on. You could see that happening in the abortion space as well. I come from Pennsylvania and I'm in California right now. Both states, as I was driving to the airport, I saw two huge billboards saying abortion is legal in Pennsylvania, right? Almost like a medical tourism type thing. And in California, there's a proposal to amend the state constitution to protect abortion. You could see something like that being challenged on religious grounds, religious institutions that work with state government and so on. So you could see Roe against Wade kind of coming back through religious organizations, as in the Fulton case. So Fulton involving an organization that worked for the city of Philadelphia and wanted to refuse to recommend same-sex couples to adopt children that came to the agency, and their rights were protected in a case by the Supreme Court, which said the city of Philadelphia cannot require them to make that recommendation. So you could see that kind of thing coming up. Professor Gordon, when these cases do come up, you will definitely be the person we turn to. It was just such a pleasure to have this wide-ranging conversation with you. And honestly, I learned so much, and I think our listeners will too. You are amazing, so thank you. It's my pleasure, and you asked such good questions. What an insightful conversation about a term with a once-in-a-generation impact for how religion exists and functions in the public school space. We couldn't imagine anyone better to break it down with us. We've got some great episodes planned ahead too on freedom of the press and gun safety in schools with the best guests around, so stay with us. But for now, leave us a rating, drop us a review, and for more coverage of the Supreme Court by teenagers, check out the High School SCOTUS website at highschoolscotus.com. On the blog, you can read oral argument previews, opinion analysis, interviews with eminent legal scholars, everything you need to stay in touch with the court. That's highschoolscotus.com. We can't wait to see you next time.